Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Bert Zipperer, a member of Madison Teachers Incorporated Retirees. Your financial support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. And I'm Victoria Gutierrez, a member of SEIU Healthcare Wisconsin. This week we check in with workers at Colectivo in their fight for a contract about job actions, um, find out about job actions at UW. Nurses have planned sit down with Wisconsin AFL-CIO President Stephanie Bloomingdale and share the latest COVID report, plus much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Workers at Colectivo Coffee voted to join a union, but Colectivo Management has refused to bargain for a first contract. So on Wednesday, the workers and their union turned up the pressure. Greg Gaboski has a report from Milwaukee. On Wednesday morning, a crowd of Colectivo coffee workers, union brothers and sisters, and community supporters gathered at the Humboldt Road Colectivo coffee shop in Milwaukee that doubles as the company's headquarters. Colectivo workers in Milwaukee, Chicago, and Madison have voted for representation from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the IBEW. But Colectivo management has refused to bargain a first contract. Stephanie Bloomingdale, president of the Wisconsin AFL-CIO, was there and gave a summary of where things stand. Very happy to be here today standing in solidarity with the workers at Colectivo who organized with the IBW 494 and IBW 1220. These workers came together, organized their union, played by the rules, they did everything right, stood strong, even though there was very bad pushback from the shady union busters that Colectivo hired. They won their election and now they won their first contract. And what's happening is the owners right now are stalling. After some speakers were heard, a petition signed by thousands of Colectivo worker members and supporters demanding that Colectivo bargain in good faith with its now unionized workforce was brought into the Colectivo shop, but management made themselves scarce. Dean Warsh is the business agent for IBW Local 494 in Milwaukee. He is disappointed in Colectivo management's refusal to enter into legally required good faith bargaining, but he is confident that the newly organized members of Colectivo will stand firm until a contract is won. The employees here are standing strong and even more fired up than they were at the beginning. David Youngbluth of IBW Local 158 in Green Bay was there. The call went out that they needed support down in Milwaukee, so I hopped in my car and came down here to show support. That's what we do. Ryan Koffel, a shift leader at the Logan's Square Collectivo in Chicago, was an organizer for the successful union drive. He described how it started. I've been organizing with the Collectivo Collective for almost two years now, almost from the beginning. So it has been a long, long journey. We uh, initially, you know, like most union campaigns, we had to organize in the shadows. It became pretty clear in the beginning that we wanted to make sure that every Collectivo coworker, whether you work in a cafe, whether you are a baker, whether you are a roaster, whether you're a delivery driver, that you were represented with our contract. We're targeting the entire company. 
Huffle described the company's reaction to the organizing drive once it became public. They hired a very expensive union avoidance lawyer out of the Labor Relations Institute. We had captive audience meetings. Each cafe closed the store for a couple hours while a union avoidance lawyer came in to discuss with us why unions are bad and why we don't need them. Our owners came in also would send multiple emails per week. You know, we appreciate unions. We love unions. You just don't need a union. You can do better without a union. All the while telling us, you know, they appreciate us, but that not, not, not enough to actually allow us to organize. That was roughly when they started laying off more people. That was when my colleague Zoe lost their job. Zoe Mjolner, who Kuffel just mentioned, was a trainer for Colectivo and a union organizer. They were let go, supposedly due to COVID-related cutbacks in October 2020. Mjolner describes what happened next. Uh, I was asked by HR if I would like to be called back because I had offered to take a demotion to stay working in the cafes. Basically, if there was any way that I could keep working for the company, I would do that until my position was then viable again. And they said there was no room for me, but they could put me on a callback list if I wanted to. I immediately said, yes, I would like to do that. Please put me on that list. And I never heard back. Even when the cafes were hiring again, and there were positions at my old cafe, at many of the other cafes. But although Colectivo resumed extensive rehiring, Mueller was never called back. Eventually, they were even hiring for the trainer position. With the amount of training that you have to go through to become a trainer, that's a lot of money invested on the company's part. So it does not make sense to train somebody else to fill that position when you have somebody who is fully trained and good at their job. And so the fact that then my position was filled after I told them I wanted to come back seems like a pretty clear message that they did not want me there. And it was for other reasons besides COVID budgetary reasons. Mjolner has since been hired for a job by IBUW and has an unfair labor practice complaint pending in the National Labor Relations Board. But despite the tactics of Colectivo management, the workers are standing firm for a first contract. Here is Kate, a Colectivo worker from Chicago, addressing the crowd. Nationwide, there's so much momentum for unions right now. And in our stores, there is so much momentum. And in our communities, there is so much momentum. So Colectivo management, if you are listening, Please come to the bargaining table, bargain with your workers. We've won our election. Thank you so much. That was Kate, a Colectivo coffee worker and new member of IBEW, speaking Wednesday in Milwaukee at a rally at Colectivo Coffee. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jaboski. UW nurses demand union recognition. Frank Emspach has this story. On Thursday, January 13th, 11 UW nurses met with UW Health System CEO Alan Kaplan and presented him with over 1,500 cards signed by nurses showing strong majority support for a union voice. According to the union, more than 100 other nurses stood outside the meeting holding supportive signs to show their unity. Nurses told Kaplan that it's imperative for the UW HCA board and administration to recognize her union voice so they can work together to solve the growing crisis at UW Health and ensure safe, quality patient care. In the meeting with Dr. Kaplan, nurses described the crisis at UW Health and how it is affecting themselves, their families, and their ability to care for their patients. Nurses noted that over many years, UW Health executives have implemented a series of harmful cuts, including to nurses' staffing levels, health insurance, and continuing education benefits resulting in severe difficulties with recruitment and retention. The Wisconsin Legislative Council, among others, has concluded that Act 10 simply deleted the obligation 
for the University of Wisconsin hospitals and clinics to recognize a nurses' union, but no law whatsoever prohibits a voluntary recognition. In response to the question, what will be the union's next step should UW hospitals and clinics not agree to recognize the union, in an email to Labor Radio, a union spokesman said, quote, We are not sharing specifics right now, but there will be actions dramatically ramping up inside and outside the hospital soon. I'm Frank Emsbach for Labor Radio. Madison Teachers Incorporated, or MTI, the union for Madison public school teachers and staff, circulated a petition on Friday last week demanding, among other things, COVID-19 sick pay. And on Monday of this week, the Madison School Board approved a plan providing just that. The new policy will provide district employees who are already eligible for sick leave with five days of COVID-19 leave plus two additional mental health days. According to school superintendent Carlton Jenkins, who spoke to the Wisconsin State Journal, the new policy would be implemented immediately with a more comprehensive long-term plan to be completed within a week. Under the former policy, teachers and staff had to use regular paid time off or sick leave to cover any absences due to COVID. Numerous academic staff and hourly employees at UW-Madison are appealing their new salaries and job titles as UW implements a new title and total compensation system. On November 7th, all hourly and academic staff employed by the University of Wisconsin-Madison received their new job title and were asked to sign off on them. One problem, the salaries were not included. Aside from a process which asks people to sign off on a job description without knowing the salary range, other aspects of the project raised issues. According to the university, the Title and Total Compensation Project, or TTC, will result in, quote, relevant and market-informed titles to help us keep and grow our outstanding workforce, end quote. Labor Radio spoke with Pete Haney, university staff, and president of Ask Me Local 2412, and Jason Lee, academic staff and co-president of United Faculty and Academic Staff, AFT Local 223. Pete Haney addressed the issue of who exactly is the market referred to by the University of Wisconsin. Do you know? We don't know because that calculation happened through the contractor and the, the precise way the market was calculated uh, is, is not is not out there. After the UW released the job titles and rangers, the unions made this assessment. Again, Pete Haney. Now that we see them, they have turned out to be extraordinarily broad. So the whole idea has been that that the that this project compares us to the market and gives a range for, you know, what, you know, what somebody with a similar job would be paid at a peer institution of some kind. And what we see now is that there is a lot of room, there's a lot of wiggle room. One example of the wiggle room will suffice. For one specific job, the range in salary was $39,000 per year to $122,000 per year. 
but the UW did not initially release salary information that would allow employees to compare their situation with others across the system with the same or similar jobs. Jason Lee explains. They wouldn't even provide like the basic just data so that we so that people could see that. They very much tried to keep this as individualized as possible and to keep us as siloed as possible. That was an issue that folks had raised since the beginning of this process three or four years ago, and that being a major concern of most people not knowing the salary range because it influences your potential for growth within a job, uh, provides potential inequitable sort of salary structure for people across campus doing similar work. And so- In order to get the needed information to enable people to make informed judgments as to their status and pay, UFAS put in an open records request. UW initially denied the request that finally provided the data for each job, showing not only the salary range, but the actual salaries for all employees covered by the TTC. The information was distributed campus-wide by UFAS. With this data in hand, employees then had the ability to appeal. Employees may submit a formal appeal to their supervisor and or divisional human resources representative up until February 4th. Listeners are urged to get in touch with AFSCME Local 2412 or United Faculty and Academic Staff to review their employment situation and to get advice as to how to appeal. Overall, Pete Haney made this assessment of the TTC and the process. For the most part, this is something that came from the top down and we need need to build power at the bottom to for you know for us to really have a voice in how work is organized and compensated and recognized on campus. And uh, there's no substitute uh, for for having that collective voice. And that's what that's what all of the union locals on campus are trying to do. Thanks to Jason Lee and Pete Haney for this interview. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. Charter school teachers and staff in Milwaukee have filed for a union election. Here's the story. Last week, on January 5th, workers at Carmen Schools of Science and Technology, a group of six charter schools in Milwaukee, announced their intent to organize a union. They are organizing the Carmen Workers Collective as a local of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, or the IAMAW. There are nearly 200 teachers, social workers, specialists, and other workers in the schools, and the Carmen Workers Collective intends to be a wall-to-wall union of all non-managerial staff at the school group. The main issues and demands of the workers are equity, financial fairness, sustainable workloads, and transparency and accountability. According to a post on Facebook from the union, Carmen will not be able to hire and retain a diverse staff unless it promotes equity and a diverse staff will diversify our students' experiences. Leland Pan is a teacher at the Carmen Southeast High School campus. In the union's press release announcing the campaign, Pan said, quote, I see so many passionate, dedicated, and excellent Carmen staff come and go. Our students deserve experienced and highly qualified workers from a range of backgrounds and identities. When our pay, benefits, and work hours are compared to both Milwaukee Public Schools and other charter schools in the region, it's clear our school network is contributing to a race to the bottom for employee conditions, rather than the reverse. On Wednesday, organizers announced that a petition has been filed with the National Labor Relations Board for a secret ballot election. The union says that the election should be conducted in 45 to 60 days. While public schools have one of the highest union densities of any field, 
Charter schools have remained heavily non-union. A union victory at Carmen would represent a significant breakthrough into this quasi-public-private part of the education system. Since the school is a charter rather than a true public school, union organizers say that this will mean they are not covered by Act 10, and so they will have a legal right to bargain over things that public employee unions in Wisconsin are not legally able to. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Scott McCullough. The president of the Wisconsin AFL-CIO spoke to Labor Radio with an update on the opportunity for pro-worker legislation coming out of Washington. This week, President Joe Biden told the nation that his administration would try to overturn the Senate filibuster rule that would block passage of new voting rights legislation. On Wednesday, Wisconsin AFL-CIO President Stephanie Bloomingdale spoke to Labor Radio about the outlook for the voting rights legislation and the Protect the Right to Organize Act, or PRO Act, key labor legislation, which would ban many of the tactics used, for example, by Colectivo Coffee Management. We have to really do something about this filibuster because it's denying the right of the people to have what they democratically voted for. We have the votes of people that support working people that want to pass the PRO Act, but this arcane filibuster rule is getting in the way of that. Not only that, but also the voting rights bill. People need to believe in their democracy, that democracy works, and that's why we need to sideline the filibuster and pass the voting rights bill and get right to passing the Protect the Right to Organize Act. That was AFL-CIO President Stephanie Bloomingdale. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Chicago teachers joined the fight for safer classrooms last week as their school district locked them out of remote instruction. Labor Radio's Sean Hagrup discusses their struggle. Unionized Chicago teachers are resuming in-person instruction late this week after a five-day standoff between the union and the school district over the district's COVID-19 policies resulted in teachers being locked out of their school's online systems. After a two-day return from the district's winter break, the Chicago Teachers Union voted last Tuesday to switch back to remote learning amid a soaring number of Omicron cases in their classrooms, and as a number of other school districts nationwide struggled to strike a balance between teacher safety and in-person instruction. The district, uninterested in seeing remote learning continue, locked union members out of the school's online network. The subsequent deadlock canceled classes for the next five days, as the district refused to budge on safety improvements. The teachers union specifically called for an expanded testing schedule for students and their families, requiring random tests for members of the school district unless they opted out of the system. Additionally, the teachers sought case thresholds for switching district-wide to remote instruction which hadn't been a policy of the district until the beginning of the new school year. A tentative agreement between the Chicago Public School District and the union was reached over the weekend. Under the agreement, testing would be expanded, but the opt-out system would not be included. The agreement also did not address district-wide closures, but defined metrics for closing individual schools. On Wednesday, the teachers' union voted to approve the tentative agreement by a slim majority, with 56% voting in favor. Returns to classrooms took place as early as the same day. Quote, this vote is a clear show of dissatisfaction with the boss, union president Jesse Sharkey said in a statement, referring to Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Quote, this agreement covers only a portion of the safety guarantees that every one of our school communities deserve. Our members vote today represents a union's and a city's frustration with a mayor that has simmered since the beginning of this pandemic. End quote. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. 
In spite of significant public support for removing Postmaster General DeJoy, the Postal Board of Governors recently elected a DeJoy supporter as board chair. On Wednesday, January 12th, the Postal Board of Governors unanimously elected Roman Martinez IV, a retired investment banker, as board chair after President Joe Biden declined to renominate past chair Ron Bloom to a new term on the board. Martinez, a Trump appointee, is viewed as a supporter of Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. Martinez's term will end in December of 2024. Congress has been considering a bipartisan plan, the Postal Service Reform Act, that will provide the USPS with $46 billion in financial relief over 10 years, including eliminating the requirement that the service pre-fund retiree health benefits for 75 years. The bill is supported by labor unions and by the Postmaster General. The election of Martinez may result in more Republican support for that plan. At the same meeting, the board unanimously elected Anton Hajar as vice chair. Hajar served as general counsel for the American Postal Workers Union prior to his May 2021 nomination by Biden to the Postal Board of Governors. Hajar's term ends in December of 2023. Also in May, Biden nominated Amber McReynolds, the founding CEO of the National Voted Home Institute, whose term ends in December of 2026, and Ronald Stroman, a previous deputy postmaster general, the second highest position in the Postal Service. His term ends in December of 2028. In November, Biden nominated Daniel Tangerlini, who served as the administrator of the General Services Administration, and Derek Kahn, who was once deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. Those two nominations have not yet received Senate confirmation. Prior to the January 12th Postal Board of Governors meeting, activists rallied outside the building to advocate for the removal of Postmaster General DeJoy and for protecting voting by mail. They want to stop DeJoy's 10-year plan that slows mail delivery, cuts post office window hours, and closes additional postal facilities. The service reductions especially harm those who receive medications by mail, rural residents, veterans, seniors, small businesses, people of color, and the differently abled. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. And now, our statistic of the week, the minimum wage. This week, we will talk about the federal minimum wage, currently $7.25 per hour. As of 2021, in virtually all urban and rural areas of the country, a single adult without children working full-time must earn more than $15 an hour to have enough to pay for housing and other basic living expenses. For individuals with children, year-round work at a wage of $15 an hour, the goal of the Raise the Wage Act in 225 will still be inadequate to achieve basic economic security. The federal minimum wage is not indexed to inflation. This means its real value, its purchasing power, decreases every year. In the last five years, this has led to a decrease of about 18%. However, the wealth our society produces has expanded by many times since the late 1940s. Productivity increases means that more wealth is being created per hour of work. If the minimum wage had kept up with this expansion of wealth, it would be $23.53 an hour. In other words, some of the wealth created by increased productivity would go to those that helped create it. 
Thanks to the Economic Policy Institute for the data used in this broadcast. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. Today's COVID report includes the Supreme Court decision on guidelines for large employers and new CDC guidelines. The Supreme Court Thursday blocked the Biden administration from enforcing its COVID vaccine or testing mandate for large employers in a 6-3 to three vote. The employer mandate would have required workers to be vaccinated or wear masks and be tested weekly. The Centers for Disease Control posted COVID guidelines for in-person learning. First, vaccination is the leading public health strategy to end the pandemic. Second, CDC recommends universal indoor masking by all students, staff, teachers, and visitors to K-12 schools, regardless of vaccination status. Third, new CDC guidance has reduced the recommended time for isolation and quarantine periods to five days. Fourth, in addition to universal indoor masking, CDC recommends schools maintain at least three feet of physical distance between students within classrooms to reduce transmission risk. More guidance, including recommendations on the types of masks, can be found at the website cdc.gov coronavirus. In Wisconsin, the COVID activity level is critically high in all counties. Hospitals are struggling to treat inpatients. More than 92% of hospital beds are occupied. More than 95% of intensive care units are in use. In Dane County, cases increased during this 14-day period ending Sunday, January 9th. Public health reports an average of 1,159 cases per day. Almost 3% of the entire Dane County population tested positive with a PCR test during this period. The number of people hospitalized with COVID in Dane County has also increased. Percent positivity stands at the highest ever level of 20%, with an average of 5,774 tests conducted each day. 86% of the eligible Dane County population have received at least one dose of the vaccine, and 81% have completed the initial vaccine series. The nearest vaccine site can be found at this website, vaccines.gov. Public Health Madison and Dane County is supporting accelerated labs that opened an additional mass testing clinic in Dane County to meet the demand for testing with a sustainable solution amid a surge in cases. The walk-up clinic will be open in three phases beginning on Monday of this week with a testing capacity of 500 to 750 tests per day, five days a week. On Monday, January 17th, capacity will increase to 1,000 tests per day, and will expand to weekends as soon as possible. This is not a drive-through clinic. Hours of operation are currently Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Sources of information for this story include Public Health Madison and Dane County, the Centers for Disease Control, the New York Times, and the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. For Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel reporting. The Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign is holding its January statewide meeting on Dr. King's birthday holiday this coming Monday. At 7 p.m. on Monday, January 17th, the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign is hosting its virtual January statewide meeting and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day event. The meeting includes a panel discussion with partners from Fight for $15, EXPO, Vecinos Unidos, and Citizens for a Clean Wausau. Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign is part of the National Poor People's Campaign, a moral fusion movement to end systemic poverty and racism, ecological devastation, and militarism.
The more than 200 supporting groups include 15 national labor unions. You can register for the meeting by emailing wisconsin at poorpeoplescampaign.org or through the Facebook page Wisconsin PPC. That virtual meeting is at 7 p.m. on Monday, January 17th. I'm Keith Steffen for Labor Radio. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Bert Zipperer. Thanks to editors Frank Imspeck and Ellen LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Jaboski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Ham, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, mm-hmm. and to all our readers, especially the amazing Victoria Gutierrez, <laughs> as well as the members of IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I am Victoria Gutierrez. <laughs> thank you to Bert Zipper, <laughs> our reader extraordinaire. Also, thank you to all of our gener- generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts. Thank you.